Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard. Our guest this week is Ravi Hutti Singh. He is the he's been on the show before, but he's the author of the new book Pivot: Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow. We are going to talk to you all about the future of education, not just the education of kids, but how you can educate yourself and prepare yourself for the changes that are coming in the economy, in the world. Uh, this is something that, you know, if you're a parent, if you are a person that is a lifelong learner, this is something you should really hear. Uh, we are, I, I, you know, Ravi is a very smart person. He has, uh, I've said this before, the most incredible resume of anybody I've ever heard. He has been a guitarist, a pilot, a, a, like a real guitarist for Hanson. He is a pilot. Uh, he has, uh, he's, he's, he is been an attache for the for the State Department, and he is is a keynote speaker and a coach. So very excited to uh, to present this to you today. Uh, in a second, I'm going to have a couple of quick pieces of intelligence you can share with your friends. But first, a quick word from our sponsors, including Rocket Mortgage. Rocket can. Okay, once again, just want to say thank you to Rocket Mortgage for making today possible. Uh, a couple quick pieces of intelligence, an easy trick to boost your brain power from neuroscientist Dr. Daniel Amen, author of the book Memory Rescue. Dr. Amen recommends reading poetry. Neuroscientist Dr. Amen says reading and comprehending descriptive language stimulates the brain's left hemisphere, which is responsible for creativity and complex data processing. That's interesting. Uh, I always thought poetry was, uh, you know, just a little frivolous and to the side, but there you go. Something that will help you with your memory. Here's another one. More people are going to the bathroom at home than ever before. That's obvious. And according to the Wall Street Journal, the demand for plumbers is at an all-time high because there's an increase in construction and older plumbers are retiring. So companies are actually offering big perks trying to recruit skilled plumbers. Some companies are offering free laundry service and a suite at Major League Baseball games. Another company is offering free weekly massages, which I think plumbers probably need. The average plumber used to make about $50,000 a year. Now, it's not uncommon to see jobs advertised from $70,000 and up to six figures. So, you know, get out the old plunger, uh, go to trade school, become a plumber. It's the it's an in-demand profession. And folks, while you guys are contemplating that level of education, here is my conversation with Ravi Hutsi-Singh about the future of education. Ravi Hutti Singh, uh, you know, you've been on the show before. You have my literally the person with my favorite resume of all time. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Gib. It's great to be back. So your your new book uh, is called Pivot, and and last time we talked a lot about uh, a lot about how your own your own career sort of gave you all of these different pivot points to pardon the extension of the of the metaphor here but you have pivoted several times and found different ways of uh of using your inherent assets to uh to switch businesses from and this is one of my favorite things being the lead guitarist in Hanson to you know being a state department attache i mean like you you really have pivoted several times uh the story of this book though i think is something that we that we really need uh, we all really need right now because we are at a sorry pivot point, and uh, and and you came to that realization in kind of a strange way because of because of the pandemic. Why don't you Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because uh, <clears throat> you're right. My career has always been a series of pivots, and when I started the book, writing the book, it was a couple of years ago, and I started with the title, you know, because I knew that's what I wanted to talk about, mm -hmm. um, even if no one else really focused on it. But of course, pivot this year has become the word of the year. I mean, everybody's using it, and it's because we are really in. A, it's hard not to overuse it, but we are in a pivotal time 
in our lifetimes. And so, you know, I've been working on the book and it, and it really is uh, a book that's geared towards educators, which I define as, um, as teachers, administrators, parents, counselors, and even students themselves to be self-directed learners, really, you know, that's such an important aspect of all yeah. of this. Yeah. And, um, uh, you, you know, so th- that idea had, had been going around in my head. But then what happened this year, of course, we all found ourselves in an unprecedented moment in our lives. And I happened to be on a three-week trip in Chile visiting some friends. That trip turned into six months because the border closed and the uh, international flights were canceled. And this was the opportunity for me to do 75% of the work on the book to bring it to completion. And that's what I really focused on down there because it was so interesting. I was quarantined with a family that has four teenagers, um, uh, 13, 15, 19, and 21. That's a so lot. So a couple of that's them a lot. starting university. <laughs> yeah. And a couple of them starting university and a couple of them, you know, in, in still in secondary school. And all of a sudden they were all at home and mm. quarantined and trying to figure out and adapt and, you know, pivot to – getting their education online and the parents are trying to figure this out. And, and so I was in, in a really interesting position to observe a family taking on the challenge that COVID-19 created for schools and um, for families. And that became kind of the canvas on which I painted this book. You know, we talked last time we talked a lot about how the world is going to change in the next uh, hundred years. I don't think we ever expected the the pandemic. I mean, a lot of experts actually did expect a pandemic to be coming up in the next 20 years, but I don't think we expected it to come out like this. Uh, and the way that we educate, uh, I mean, put it this way, uh, we knew we knew change was coming in some way. So, you, you know, I think college is going to change. But how do you begin to see to change education uh, intentionally right now? Because the world is, is really changing. We talked last time about AI and and how many jobs we're going to lose to AI and, and what's going to happen there. So how do you begin to change education for the students and for the educators? Yeah, but so it's so it's interesting. So for many of us, we we uh, on a personal level have had this opportunity to pivot before, and that was in two thousand eight when the economy crashed right. and there was high job, you know, unemployment and pensions were getting taken away and and students were also looking at their education going well wait you told me if i go to this kindergarten i'll graduate from harvard and there'll be a job waiting for me so i went to that kindergarten i paid the tuition at harvard and there's no job so you know that's the millennial generation that became very disenfranchised with the value of their own education at that point and they started to really question it mm-hmm. um, along with other things so many of us on a personal level have uh, you know, had to sort of reevaluate and maybe pivot from back in 2008. What, what's interesting about uh, education and what's happened with COVID is that we've been talking about personalized learning and technology mm-hmm. and incorporating that more into the classroom and, and the flipped model where, you know, you don't have a teacher lecturing, but you have, you know, kids more interacting and, and doing more um, sort of lab-like projects in mm-hmm. school and delivering the lecture content you know, through technology instead. And we've been talking and talking because, you know, I've been keynote speaking in education now almost exclusively since 2015. And this conversation, you know, has been the conversation since since then and, and even longer. But then what happened is, well, we have to do this overnight. Yeah. <laughs> COVID-19 came, schools were closed, and every education system uh, found that everything that they've been talking about all of a sudden had to be implemented. 
What was unique about this situation that I don't think anyone was prepared for, and it's not the fault of uh, the education industry, but technology, which should be the, the great equalizer, became the source of creating more disparity. Yeah. So what we found is everybody doesn't have access to broadband internet. What we found is that even those that do have broadband internet now have, you know, four to 30 devices going on at the same time right. all day long, not just in their home, but in every house on their street. <laughs> so, right. So that uh, was just not possible. I mean, I'm, know, on the, I'm on the phone with my ISP like four times a week. Just saying, hey, yeah. this is not the bandwidth I pay for. Hey, this is not the bandwidth it's, I pay for. And their their response is, yeah. I mean, that's kind of it. Like, they're like, yeah, we know. We'll, we'll give you a couple bucks back on your bill. Or, or maybe it's your modem. Reset your modem. And it, it's, it's like that every week. But it, it, the reality is it's because everybody's working from home in my neighborhood. Well, yeah, absolutely. So the kids are all home. Everybody's working from home. Everybody's teleconferencing, video conferencing. That bandwidth is getting eaten up. And, you know, that's a real uh, challenge for teachers when their students just can't get online. And, of course, if you look at the more impoverished communities, that's a bigger issue because they don't have access to computers and iPads and technology. But then you look at the sort of middle, upper class uh, sector of society, they not only have access to the technology, but pretty much each kid has, you know, a computer, an iPad, and a cell phone all running at the same time right. on that band. Right. So, you know, it's it really did shift things in a way that I think nobody uh, imagined. But the teachers, and well, and then we also found that, you know, older teachers were at a disadvantage with using technology sure. compared to the younger teachers. So all sorts of interesting things were highlighted that we weren't really prepared for. But on the whole, it's amazing what the education industry and schools and teachers have accomplished and how how they did really manage this despite the many, many obstacles. And um, another thing that's so important in education is family engagement and making sure that parents are involved in their education. I talk a lot about this in Pivot, about how you know parents can't just at the age of five decide that for the next 12 years they're going to outsource the education of their children to something called school. Right. Parents have to be involved. They have to partner, you know, with with the schools in their child's education. Well, COVID forced that to happen, whether they wanted to or not, because the kids were home. The parents had to, you know, make sure the kids were participating in school and they just became more involved in their children's education. And that is one of the great silver linings of all of this, I think, for children and for students is that schools now have to find a way to really maintain that family engagement because it's perhaps the greatest opportunity that they've had in a long time. I mean, look, I, I've experienced, I've, I've experienced that, um, uh, in my own household where like, I, I get to have lunch with my kids every day. I get to hear what's going on in a minute to minute basis. I get to check in. I see the highs and lows of, of their education, but there is that you're, what you're talking about there, this, this notion is actually a further catalyst for disparity because, uh, I happen to have, and, and most white-collar workers have jobs where they can work from home, whereas uh, a lot of you know essential frontline, et cetera, workers who who often don't make as much money uh, have their kids doing school from home while they have to be out of the home. And that you're looking at even less engagement because now the child is basically unsupervised on the computer during the day, like, uh, you know, high school kids are, are sitting there and, and whether they check in or not is completely up to them. And you're creating 
even more of a of a learning gap based on uh, on the career of the parents. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I mean, there's so many different facets to it. So, you know, if you break it down from sort of a socioeconomic level, as you just did, uh, yeah, you can see where that does create more disparity and it creates so much more, uh, so many more challenges. Um, Though I do think that schools have been pretty good uh, in general at making sure that at least those kids do have access to the technology. They are getting iPads and and Mm -hmm. Chromebooks and homes of those kids that don't have them. And um, I, I, I'd be interested to see some statistics on it. But my guess is, is that a lot of those students maybe are, uh, you know, still pretty much involved uh, with their classes because they now have this access uh, that they might not have had before. So, yeah. you know, there's a positive side there, too. But another interesting thing, you know, I talk a lot about in Pivot about the importance of experiential learning and real world learning and making sure that kids have exposure that goes way beyond school so that they can see what the real world is all about. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, yeah, so you're at home with your kids and you're able to keep on top of their school, you know, more than you might have otherwise and have lunch with them and all of that. Mm -hmm. But they're also doing that with you. So they're getting exposure to what you really do and what your work is like. And this is a great opportunity you know, for parents not to lock themselves up in the room, but to make in their home office, but to make sure that their kids are also able to observe what mom and dad really do and what a job is like and what the commitment is like. And there's there's so many teaching opportunities yeah. there. And that's why parents parents are are, are teachers uh, as well. They're educators for sure. I mean, it's uh, every day is take your child to work day basically now is, is and, and all of the benefits and all of the implications of that. Um, I, I mean, one of the things I love is I, I kind of miss my commute as something that I can use to reset my life. You know, I, I, I used to use my commute to listen to podcast shows and kind of calm down and separate my workday from my home life. But uh, now without a commute, what I actually what instead I'm enjoying is, hey, I can just press pause on my work and go be a part of making dinner and be a part of sitting down and um, uh, and and starting dinner on time and doing bedtime and then I can go back to my work whenever I want that just losing the time that I used to lose during a uh, during a commute has made me a much more involved parent and and for that I will be eternally grateful that has been uh, a really fun thing the number of dinners that I've been able to just have as a family where I used to maybe come home and and scarf down a plate uh, right before bedtime because um, I was working late that that's that's been over and I really really have appreciated that and that uh, well, how many studies have shown that mealtime is, yeah. is so important? Oh, absolutely. You know, I do talk about that in the book, too, the value of family getting together every night and having uh, that family meal together because it's a very important opportunity for parents to be provocative with their children, uh, understand what they're learning, and also give them more ideas to take into the classroom. You know, one of the things I did in the book at at the end of every chapter is I put a bunch of uh, sort of a summary in the form of suggested pivots and, and bullets. And these are things that parents and teachers can just bring into their children's lives, into their students' lives, uh, you know, in a very clear way in order to make sure that all of these types of real-world learning and real opportunities to educate the whole child are becoming part of the daily activities um, and daily life of a student. So it's really important. 
And you're right, that commuting time. I mean, many, many people are getting hours and hours back. And the flip side of that is, you know, none of us are spending as much money on gasoline or on, mm-hmm. you know, the other things, which which greatly affects our economy. It's collapsing uh, the commodities but, markets. That's it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and uh, changes the job market. And, and that's why, you know, things like what we're experiencing now are just great opportunities to see how unpredictable things are because we don't know all the ripple effects. It all depends on how long this lasts. Right. So, you know, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can educate kids um, for a predictable future. We can't. Right. And as I say in the book, the school parents, we, we only have one obligation, one responsibility to teach one thing to every child, and that is how to learn. If we teach a child how to learn, mm. they will be self-sufficient learners for the rest of their lives and lifelong learners. And that is the key to being able to pivot in an unpredictable future. I mean, that, so now you're entering into something that I really, I really want to dig deeper into. So, so a lot of people don't realize that our current education system or our education system in the United States going into, uh, this, into this was basically – it's basically been uh, – uh, uh, like uh, uh, built on a we've we've done a bunch of add-ons to a house that was built right after World War II, right? The the concept of the education system was during like this this big uh, social expansion in the 1950s, and and that is the edu- that's that's the infrastructure for the most part. They've built some new buildings, but nothing like they were doing in the 50s. And the the uh, orientation of the kids, where we track kids or we try to get kids into college. Uh, try to get them into trade school like that. That really has not shifted, except for small incremental changes. Uh, you know, in the last 60, 70 years. Um, but the realities of the of the world that we're preparing children for are very different than the realities we're preparing children for with that that educational design. Uh, uh, you know, you, we're talking about a world where people would work for the same company for thirty years, retire with a pension paid for by the company. And 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 that would be it. That's you know, that's the the amount of jobs that people work, the amount of time that they spend at the job that that's all shifting uh, to a very different world right now. Not to mention that whole industries no longer exist that used to exist. So um, those changes have happened, you know, more slowly over the last 70 years, but are going to happen much more quickly. And with the amount the rate of change is going to become uh, exponential as we as we go into the future because the the rate of technological development and its applications is going up so much so uh you know i guess you're i, I don't really know what the question is so much as to say like the idea of pivoting seems to be more important now than it ever has been and the idea of redesigning education in order to prepare us like you said to be lifelong learners is more important now than it ever has been um i just find that the task so daunting like how how do you yeah. how do you begin to, tra- to train kids to be in a constant state of flux for the rest of their existence? Right. So one of the one of the things I define in the book up front is what it means to pivot as opposed to change, and I think that's really important because um, change is very daunting, but pivoting doesn't have to because you do pivot on a point, and the point is well, what are our strengths and what are what's the fundamental purpose? I mean, if you look at my own career from music to aviation to cultural diplomacy, um, it's very clear that uh, education has always been a part of it. I've been a teacher throughout that, and, and I am a teacher through keynote speaking. And, Um, to educational leaders and others. But um, music has also been a key part of it. The arts have, have, even when I was in uh, aviation, the way I helped the aviation industry recruit millennial pilots was actually by setting up music concerts 
at air shows because mm. the number one priority for millennials was music, not aviation. But this was a way to bring them to the airport. And what was interesting, the reason for that is because I found a statistic that said that 49.7% of pilots play a musical instrument. So there was actually a huge crossover mm. that I wanted to tap. And that was my pivot into aviation becoming you know, more of a career. So the, there's always consistencies when you pivot as opposed to change. So it doesn't have to be that daunting. But I think the question, you know, in what you were saying before, at least the question that, that I felt uh, from what you were talking about is really, you know, how does educa education needs to be reimagined and, and reinvented in order to get out of that same system that we've been in since, you know, World War II. And, you know, society's evolved technology's evolved, industries have evolved, the job market has completely changed, yet our education system is still right. predicated right. you know, on the same system. So I think, I think that sort of what, where I thought you felt you were going with that. Um, so my point really, and, and I talk a lot about this, is I actually think we don't need to reimagine education. I don't think we need to make significant changes. What I think we need to do is reevaluate the role that school has in our lives. We've gotten into a situation where we think school is the totality of a child's education. And I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying it's a critical part, but it's not the totality of it. It has a, a foundational role in educating a child, but but the family does as well. The life, life does, real-world experiences. We have to make sure that, that school doesn't become a time suck, in a sense, of every kid's uh, life. They still have to have time to take those lessons and apply them in the real world while they're learning them, not sure. 12 years later. Sure. Uh, so they need to have the time like I did as a, as a high school kid where I got all my homework done before uh, the end of the day, the end of the school day, so I could jump on the train and go into New York City and knock on the studio doors and hang out in the cool recording studios, none of which exist anymore. Um, you know, and and uh, watch the professionals work and learn my the craft of recording music and yeah. you know engineering at the highest level while I was still in high school. And it's an interesting point. You know, if I had studied all that in school and then twelve years later finally got to those studios, well, those studios aren't there anymore. They yeah. don't exist. Right, right, right. So you know, it, it, that would have been pointless. But the luxury that I had and was fortunate to have was uh, sort of the wherewithal to say, I want. I, I know somebody in the studios, I'm going to go knock on the door and see if they'll let me sit in, in, in session. So we have to give kids the time for that opportunity. We have to encourage them. You know, the worst lesson we teach a kid is don't talk to a stranger. We have to teach them how to talk to strangers because strangers are filled with opportunities and wisdom sure. and, and things that we don't have at home and that we don't have in the classroom. So the totality of education is far more than what school does, but what school has been doing since World War II and continues to do today is provide a very solid foundation on which any student can then build upon if they have the right support system outside of school. And that's really the point that I'm trying to make about what it means to educate a whole child so that that whole child can pivot throughout an unpredictable future. I mean, we're talking right now, you know, it's sort of like how we how we revise society to 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 um, to accommodate this notion. And like, I have so many questions, Ravi, like, you know, you, you make a great point teaching the child to become a lover of learning how much education happens outside of the classroom, how much more important that is like one of the things I really miss during quarantine is, 
is museums. I, I, you know, that's one of my favorite ways to go and explore information with my kids is interactive or, or visual demonstrations of knowledge laid out, whether it's the Natural History Museum or Science Museum. I love taking my kids to that stuff. And, I, and, we're, and I'm losing that. Um, but the, the other thing that, that sort of pops up is how do you measure that? Because it used to be that the true value and the value proposition of all education were aligned. Right, like the true value was you learn how to learn. You uh, you uh, you get to do all of these. Uh, you, you you get to talk to the greatest college professors at the best college you can get into. So you get to learn from the smartest minds. And then the value proposition was you get this piece of paper at the end of it that now increases your perceived value in the job market. Right. So everything was aligned so that the money you were spending aligned with the uh, 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 alleged money that you were going to get back. So the the everything was kind of in in, right. in alignment. That's changed, right? Because, you know, uh, different college degrees mean different things to people. Sometimes the most expensive college degrees are the least valuable in the job market. You're talking about um, something that's, that's immeasurable. How do you begin to measure, for an education perspective, how do you begin to measure that? Yeah. Uh, and then we'll pivot. I want to pivot, yes. pun intended, into, into <laughs> what we can do as individuals. Okay, so so this is a, a great place you're taking the conversation right now because just yesterday I gave the keynote for the um, Independent Educational Consultants Association, and these are the people that guide students, you know, on their next step after they're going to graduate twelfth grade. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to go to school? How are those college applications going to work, and all of that? Now, ninety percent of this conference was all geared to the college application, and my whole argument—I I dropped out of college after after three months, after one semester, because my whole argument is is that we can't uh, look at you know college as being the the obvious next step. You know, it's not the the. the the, the phrase that's used in education is we have to make our kids college and career ready. Right. And my argument is, no, we need to make them college or career ready. Um, you know, and they, and they can choose whatever they want. I mean, college is a great path. I mean, I would love it. Ultimately, I'd love to see college be relevant for everybody. But the business has changed because – and I call it a business because education has become a business. And that's exactly where it's changed. Right. You know, it's uh, – there isn't that return on investment, which is what you were – directly yeah. referring to just now on on that whole trajectory and this is what i was talking about at the conference yesterday is you know kids realized that the millennials realized it after 2008 and you can bet that gen z is going to realize it now after this pandemic that their education better be relevant because that name brand that they're paying for is not paying off the way that it used to so we really you know this i say often i think community college is probably the future of america and i think it would be great that if 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 every kid saw college as part of their lifelong learning, but it shouldn't necessarily be a hundred percent of what they do at the mm-hmm. time. It can be parallel to work experience and internships and, and all sorts of other things. But, but we have a, you know, we have a higher education culture and system mm-hmm. that basically says we got to keep you, we got to keep you in school for as long as possible. And yeah, we'll, we'll keep giving you loans. Don't worry about that. Right. And by the way, they're not forgivable through bankruptcy. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. It's just like, I mean, it's crazy that we bankrupted a generation on their education. I don't know how that makes us the strongest country, but we keep telling ourselves that yet yeah. we bankrupt and generation based on their education so that does have to pivot that really does have to shift and and i tell you the students are going to force it because they're just not willing to buy into that anymore and education you know and higher education especially due to covid 
now with all these kids learning at home going way, does it really make sense for me to pay all this money to go back to campus? They're really going to have to figure out higher education's going to really have to figure out its value proposition. And that trickles down to K through 12 because K through 12 right now is focused on one thing. How do we get these kids into college? Because a lot of their funding and things like that are, you know, college acceptance rates and things like that. So from that standpoint, that just has to flip. And one of the things I say in the book, and it's something I very much believe, is that uh, education needs to stop focusing on achievement and it needs to focus on learning. Right. All we focus on are achievement and numbers and grades. And we, and, and, to the last part of your question, you know, how do we create assessments if it's not going to be, right? you know, that black and white? So, you know, that's summative assessment versus formative assessment. And as I, I say to a lot, a lot of my audiences, you know, summative assessment, form, rather formative assessment is when the chef tastes the soup. He can still make some changes. Summative assessment is when the client sitting in the restaurant dining room tastes the soup. It's mm-hmm. over at that point. Right. You know, so formative assessment is very important in education so that teachers can evaluate the results of what they're doing before the student takes the test. Right. And it's qu- quizzes, quizzes is, versus exams. You know, well, not even quizzes, but it's, it's uh, you know, making sure that these students do a lot of presentations in class and and demonstrate their knowledge and abilities in other ways than just sitting down and answering a bunch of multiple choice questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I mean, okay, so we've, we've come to an interesting predicament now, right? Which is, I see the value in what you're talking about. The measurability, the summative achievement element of it is kind of nebulous at this point. I, I see why the... the um, what do, you, what do you call it? The, the constructive? What's what's the middle part? What, uh, the, you, you have two the versus... Formative assessment? Yeah, yeah, so the formative assessment, I've actually seen that shift uh, in, in, in my own life of where, where educators are doing a much better job of being more hands-on, making the kids present Definitely. information, you know, model-based learning, presentational-based learning, project-based learning, like all of that is... I, I see that happening more and more in my own life. But... The world is still oriented, I mean, to summative achievement being what gets you hired. And so how do we begin to educate our own kids in this way that prepares them in reality for the future while while the world is still oriented to the old system? As so individuals. summative assessment still has, yeah, it still has a place in... I mean, uh, as individuals, okay, well, some of those assessments still has a place uh, in education and that it's a communication tool. I mean, parents as individuals still want to know what their kids are doing. And it's one of the easiest ways to evaluate and communicate. But what we are seeing, I mean, I hear it all the time uh, through human resources departments and um, executives that are talking about their hiring practices, is they are really doing much more formative assessment and just seeing how a child, or a, a, not a child, but a, a, a potential employee handles himself in the interview. Uh, and it has a lot less to do with the numbers on the resume and the degree and all of that than it does the way that they actually present themselves. 
Um, so as individuals and as, especially as parents, you know, it's very important that we hold our children to a high standard of presentation, you know, from how they hold a knife and fork and how they communicate and how they ask questions, uh, how they demonstrate their culture. You know, I talk a lot about culture and you know, part of my job is as a cultural catalyst. And that's a lot of what I do for the State Department is creating programs that bring together people from different cultures so that they can learn from each other and become curious and somehow you know, in the big picture lead us to world peace at some point. But this is a fundamental part of education now is making, you know, culture is important and being cultured is important, especially if we're going to create global citizens. And that means presenting yourself in a manner that um, represents, uh, you know, the you know, I'm going to put it this way. I saw a pilot, young uh, African-American pilot in an airport. And, and you know, I see a lot of pilots who are got their hat under their arms and they're you know, running to their next flight and all of that. And they just, this guy was decked out. He looked like a million bucks. He was looking really good. And I just say, I went up to him and said, you know, I just want to compliment you for the way you're wearing your suit and the way you're wearing your hat, because, you know, that's something that, doesn't happen that much anymore in the in the pilot community and he looked at me and said you know my dad taught me a lot of things but the one thing that stuck is he always told me don't dress for the job you have dress for the job you want and i know that was a great concept because that's presentation is important and it's becoming once again more important than what's on the resume and a lot of these hr and hiring staff at companies are saying that they're not really that interested in the resume anymore. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you say dress for the job you want, but like the richest people in the world right now wear wear you know flip flops, jeans, and hoodies to work. So it's you know it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird time for that to be the case. But I I, I you know in, I I understand your inherent point in there. So I think yeah yeah. Um, well, that was a pre-COVID comment anyway. Yeah. But you're right. You know. We, if you want to be Steve Jobs, I still think if you want to be Steve Jobs, you're not going to dress like Steve Jobs to get there. But once you are Steve Jobs, well, then you can put on the flip flops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the uh, what, what do we do about companies right now who don't have the hiring bandwidth that company that like a lot of the companies you're talking about, like Google and Facebook, have, where they have so much money per employee to be able to spend in recruitment. Uh, not every company can do that. And there are certain certifications and, and things that other companies need. Like if you're a plumber, you, you, you need certain certifications in order to be able to hang a shingle and to be able to plumb. And uh, so how do we how do we begin to bridge bridge that gap where, you know, not every organization has the hiring resources to spend three days evaluating an employee formatively. Uh, they, they get about 10 yeah. seconds to look at a resume. So I think that I think that's going to change significantly. And so here's a prediction: um, higher education, uh, as we know it, is going to phase out. And what's going to happen more is that uh, the workforce development divisions, let's say, workforce development component of community college, will be partnering much more with industries. So industries are essentially going to be creating academies. They're going to recruit out of high school. Uh, and essentially those academies are going to be in the community college network. Interesting. And those 
candidates will be basically formed for the needs of those companies and industries interesting at that at that level i mean that creates sort of a yeah. weird thing though where it, where you become attached to whatever company that's going to go back to like the 1950s where the uh, yeah, uh, contract yeah and i mean like like cal arts for example which is one of the leading performing arts and visual arts schools in the world uh, was designed for Walt Disney to be able to train people to be animators and imagineers in his in his company. So that's that was why it was founded. Uh, are we going to go back to that where we're going to have all of these academies that are founded by large corporations? And is that only going to create more disparity in the corporate world? Yeah, potentially. You know, I mean, I think it's I think it's very cyclical, and I think there's a there's a reason why most things in life are cyclical is because there are aspects of it. Um, that really do work well. And we go back and we go, you know, okay, we take that, but we can uh, expound upon it in, this, in a certain way and, and improve upon it. Um, and then there's also the younger generation that's more independent in some ways, mm-hmm. not necessarily of their parents and families, but but they certainly are in terms of how they're going to work. Um, you know, they may say, that's fine, I'll do this, but uh, I'm not going to be attached to your company for that many years. Right. Um, so, you know, it'll have to evolve, but I think, you know, specifically the hiring practices um, of companies are, they're not, they're going to want the better qualified candidate. And if right. they're not getting it from the, the you know, higher education graduate pool, well, they're going to create it themselves. Yeah. It's cheaper. It's more efficient. Um, you know, and, and, uh, a lot of it can be done from home and the students are, you know, now accustomed to learning from home. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to be a huge change. Um, and I think, uh, it may not be a quick change because I think there's still uh, a lot of students that value the college life mm-hmm. and, you know, and all of that and, and campus activities and things like that. But I think ultimately it's going to we've seen a lot of opportunity for that. And if you look at the combination of that higher education degree becoming less valuable to the corporations and you look at the concept of students recognizing that they're paying too much for their education and not getting that return on investment, I, to me it sort of seems kind of obvious that we're going to transition into that kind of a structure. Yeah. Well, if you want to prepare your kids for this, if you want to prepare yourself for this, the book is Pivot, Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow. And I think we can all agree, uh, if today's so unpredictable, tomorrow's going to be even more so. Ravi Hutti Singh, I just appreciate you so much uh, for being with us today. I'm going to ask you two things. Aside from buying the book, how can people follow up with you? So I'd love for people to visit my website, raviunites.com, and you can get a lot of information there. Sign up for my blog. You can read uh, excerpts and chapters from the book there as well. And, um, you know, just stay engaged because, uh, as I always say to my audiences, you know, it's I've got some ideas, but but we all have the accountability to implement them, and together we can do more. So it's it really is about all of us joining forces to create a, a bright future and to prepare these students. Link to RaviUnites.com in the show notes as well as a link to where to buy the book. One last question, and I ask it to everybody. Where, uh, what is one thing we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? I think it's really important to listen more than talk. And that's mm. a reversal from what we typically do on social media. Yeah. We have to, once again... You know, the time uh, today, it's so obvious what's going on in our country and in the world. We need to get back to civil discourse. And the key to getting back to civil discourse 
and leading by example so that the next generation knows how to talk to each other and solve problems is to spend more time listening than talking. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think it's a skill we've all lost. Uh, Ravi, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you. And um, yeah, just, just you know, stay with us. I will. Thanks, Gib. I really appreciate it. That's it for our show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a lot. We also spend a lot of time on Facebook, facebook.com slash John Tesh. We go live there pretty much every day. You guys can interact with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, John is also on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. You find me, facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. I try to respond to every message, every DM. In fact, a couple people that have been on the show were recommended by you guys because ultimately I do the show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs>